Last week, we talked a little bit about religious rhetoric. And we talked a little bit about how we use these specialized words many times to express our faith. But sometimes religious rhetoric often gets in the way because it prevents us from interacting with other people. And I want to talk a little bit today about how our rhetoric and the rhetoric of science interacts with each other. Often religious rhetoric gets in the way of relating to fields of science and the discoveries of science. And there's a tendency on both sides, science or religion, to kind of talk past each other and not really say anything to communicate to each other. And so what I want to do is help us to understand that there's been sometimes for many years communities of faith often have been kind of pushing back on science and there's a reason for that I think there is a general fear about science because I'm going to show you a slide here and it will evoke an emotion out of you I think so when you think about some of the claims of science where we came from, who we are, and with the Bible. How do the two interact with each other? It seems to me that people of faith, one of the things that they really need many times is certainty. And sometimes science can bring doubt into the midst of our worldview. At the heart of fear is the need for certainty and when new discoveries cause us to rethink some things, sometimes there's a pushback by the religious community. And yet at the same time, as I'm going to show you today, there are mysteries of life that are far beyond our understanding as a religious community. And there are mysteries about life that's far beyond the understandings of science as well. And so we're all trying to kind of come to grips with this information explosion that we have at our fingertips. Now, the religious community often does not see science as partners in the conversation, and that's unfortunate. We are in conversation with the science community, and I think that the science community should be in conversation with the religious community because these two fields of knowledge, both science and religion, are very important for us to understand crucial questions about life and the meaning of life as well. Now, this conflict between science and faith has been around a long time, but probably the biggest example that I can give you goes all the way back to 1543 how many of you have ever heard of the Copernican Revolution? The Copernican Revolution. Okay, let me tell you what it is. Okay, so the Copernican Revolution is a shift that was created by the discoveries of science. At one time, the church believed that the Earth was the center of the solar system and that the rest of the solar system revolved around the Earth. Well, a guy by the name of Copernicus came along and he had a different mindset. 
And what he did is he began to look deeply through the field of science and began to discover that we on planet Earth don't have things revolving around us, but we revolve around the sun. He was deemed a heretic by the church initially. Uh, later, the church will come along and say, yes, he was right in his discovery. But when you look in the Bible, it's often presented that the earth is kind of this staple, unmovable force and this ancient mindset, when taken literally, caused the early church to believe that earth was stationary and everything else revolved around it. When Copernicus and Galileo came along, they, through the field of science, began to understand that we actually are on a very tiny planet called Earth. And we're not only revolving around the sun, but our solar system is in movement as well. Let me give you some facts. I'm not going to try to overwhelm you here, but we are on a tiny corner of a very massive universe. So think about it this way. A massive planet spinning on its axis at thousands of miles per hour while orbiting the sun at the center of our solar system. Think about that for a moment. We are traveling at 66,000 miles per hour. So do you ever trip and, and fall and not know why? It's the 66,000 miles per hour that we're traveling in, okay? But did you know our solar system is also revolving around a galaxy at 450,000 miles per hour. It's mind-boggling, isn't it? There was the discoverer of Eta Car, uh, Car I think that's Carnet, um, which is this section right here. Um, it might be the biggest star in a galaxy. And this star uh, is 100 times bigger and a million times brighter than the sun, our sun. Can you imagine that? Well, fortunately, it's located about 7,500 light years away. Now, a light year travels at 186,000 miles per second. So that means light travels 5.88 trillion miles a year. 5.88 trillion miles a year. And this is 7,500 light years away. So you need to multiply 5.88 trillion by 7,500. That's almost unbelievable. You cannot imagine that. That's 4.4 times 10 with 16 zeros behind it. And yet, if this star is to explode, Scientists tell us that it would trigger a major extinction event that our lives might be in danger. Hard to imagine, isn't it? So science has a lot to offer when we think about how big the universe is. But as Carl Sagan once said, who are we? 
we find that we live on an insignificant planet of a humdrum star lost in a galaxy tucked away in some forgotten corner of the universe in which there are far more galaxies than people. Far more galaxies than people on planet Earth. That's amazing. So we are very tiny and we're not in control, but this does not mean that we're insignificant. So I read for you earlier Psalm 8. And in Psalm 8, the psalmist is telling us that we are created a little lower than the angels and that God has crowned us with glory and honor and has made us rulers over the work of his hands and he's put everything under our feet including flocks and herds and animals and birds and fish and so forth that we play a critical role in the universe because God created us to be caretakers of the world around us. So the more that we can learn from science actually helps us to be better caretakers of this home that we call planet Earth. Now, at times it's tough to keep up though. The times are always changing with new discoveries from science. Think about this for a moment. Google CEO Eric Schmidt claims that we now create as much new information every two days as all of humanity collectively created up until 2003. Can you imagine that? Every two days we have more information we are discovering than all the accumulated knowledge all this time. Now that's overwhelming, isn't it? None of us can keep that in perspective because it would just make our brains go, right? So what I'm trying to say is when we're dealing with issues of faith, our ancient ancestors, they interacted with a very small world. Their world was filled with just family and maybe the family that lived down the street. As far as technology goes, they were just learning to, to discover how to use things like iron and other precious metals. And here we are, all this time later, and our world is diverse, and it's big. And we bump into all kinds of things all the time because of things like cars and planes and television and radio and phone and internet and that type of thing. You know, life is a journey from innocence to doubt because when there's that much information how is it that you can believe all that literally all the time it's hard to comprehend now many people formed in the Christian tradition have been raised to look at the Bible with what I want to call fundamental literalism in other words well, that's the way it says it in the Bible, so that's the way it must be. For many people, if the Bible wasn't literal, then their house of cards collapses. And that's unfortunate, because there's been this misunderstanding between the relationship with science and faith. Many Christians kind of symbolically sequester themselves in panic rooms of doubt and they have to keep that 
away from them. And many people will specifically try to protect their children from the information age. And so they send them to Christian schools or perhaps homeschool them in order to protect the information that young men and women are getting. And then when those young people graduate from high school, they go off to college. And all of a sudden, it's a bigger world than what they grew up with. And so little Johnny heads off to college and now he's given alternative viewpoints and he is confused. And it creates pressure because he doesn't know what to do with that new information. And so sometimes he's tempted possibly to walk away from that. He is experiencing what we might call an epistemological crisis. In other words, I don't know what to do with all this information in my head. But he remembers growing up memorizing things like James 1, 6, and 7. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. And so that type of verse kind of becomes a key verse. Oh, what do I do? What do I do? I have all this information. I have doubts. But here the Bible says you shouldn't doubt. Well, again, every verse has a context. This isn't talking about knowledge. It's talking about suffering. So if you were to go to James chapter 1, and he talks about going through seasons of trial and seasons of suffering. And when we go through something so significant like that, one of the first doubts that we will have is about the goodness of God that we sang about. Is God good? And what James is saying to a specific group of people, some Jewish people that were experiencing some potential persecution, he is saying, don't doubt the goodness of God. Don't doubt the goodness of God. Suffering even has some practical benefits to it. You grow and you stretch and you learn and mature through suffering. So he's saying, don't expect to get anything from the Lord if you're going to doubt about his love and his goodness. But that's natural, isn't it? To doubt whether God is good when you're going through something horrendous. And yet at the same time, James is trying to say, listen, God loves us. And even though we might not understand, like Job, what we're going through, we can trust in the goodness of God. So remember what James, I mean, what Job said on one occasion. He said, after his friends kept pouring this information upon him that he must have done something wrong to go through what he's going through, Job makes this fantastic faith declaration. And he says, well, though God slay me, yet will I trust him. In other words, I might not understand the ways of God. I might not understand what God is doing in my life, but here's what I do believe, that God is good, that God is love. And when I believe that, even when I don't understand because I'm in the midst of this epistemological crisis, I don't know what to do with all this stuff that's in my head, I can still lean on through trust 
that God knows better than what I do. So crises of faith can come in all sizes and shapes. And this epistemological crisis is something that can happen to each and every one of us, especially when you realize many times as the longer you live, you begin to realize you don't have the wrong answer, but you have the wrong equation. That you're actually using the wrong info many times in trying to solve questions that you have. So our reformers would say something like this, that it's sola scriptura, back in the days of the Reformation, the only thing we're taking uh, to heart is the scriptures. But I think what they did was misunderstand something. And I think many Christians do as well. The first misunderstanding is uh, science itself. What is science doing? Is its purpose to uh, destroy our faith? No, its purpose is to discover how things work. Remember, science takes things apart to see how they work. Religion puts them together to see what they mean. In other words, many times science is simply uncovering new information that we did not know and coming up with probabilities and coming up with different theories on how this works. So science is based on research and experiments and scientists comes up with theories about how certain things work. Now these theories are also subject to change, aren't they? So something is proposed by scientists at one point and new information comes along and they have to, what? Adjust their theory because of the new information that comes along. Science is always a work in progress. And when new information is discovered, there are new theories that are proposed. Now, another problem is not just misunderstanding science, but it is also misunderstanding metaphor. When you read the Bible, the Bible um, is not a science textbook. All right? You're looking for answers in a type of literature that you, it cannot provide you with those type of answers. The, we talked about this when we talked about reframing how we look at the Bible a couple messages back. The Bible's an ancient book, really ancient, thousands of years old. And the context and the culture and the belief systems are very different back then than they are today. When we go into the Bible, especially those of us in the Western Hemisphere, we like to take things literally all the time. People in the East don't have as much problem with figurative, symbolic information as we do in Western society. But not everything in the Bible is meant to be taken literally. And so when you read Genesis chapter 3 and there is a talking serpent, it just might be an indicator, because I've never seen a talking serpent, that something symbolic and uh, non-literal is happening here. Something is happening to help us gain wisdom on where we go astray. In other words, the Bible's filled with symbols and allegory that are all tied into contextual and cultural elements. And that shouldn't shake us up one bit. 
Because in the end, whether there's a talking serpent or not, the lesson is the same, that we as human beings have the propensities to turn our back on God and walk our own way, don't we? Do our own thing, make our own decisions, and then live with the consequences of those decisions. And so it's easy to get dogmatic on these type of things. And when we do, sometimes then it becomes preposterous. So Richard Dawkins, an evolutionary biologist at Oxford University, likes to argue that religion is a cultural virus that needs to be exterminated. I don't believe that at all. I think religion is just as important for us today as it was back in the days of the Old and New Testament. I think faith is just as important as well. So sometimes what happens is a misunderstanding of how meaning is created in life. If we are going to reframe the interaction between religion and science, then we're going to have to understand how the, both of these fields of study contribute things to us. Okay. They both contribute things to us because like Rabbi Sachs says here, we can figure out how something works, but what does it mean? What does it mean to me? What does it mean to you? What does it mean to us? Religion is a uh, system of symbols. And these symbols are very important. Here's the rest of the idea behind this. So in the ancient world, you go out on a night and you see lightning in the sky, all right? What did they believe in the ancient world? Well, this is a picture of Zeus. And Zeus, it was believed, had lightning rods in his hands. And when he got mad at humanity, he threw these lightning bolts down at people. They had no frame of reference. There was no Doppler weather radar back then. Okay, so what is going on there is what happens to all of us. We're stuck in our time frame. So long ago, primitive people invented religion to try to understand these events that are going on around them all the time. But in our day and age, we have your favorite meteorologist, whoever that may be. I'll just pick one out as an example. Betsy Kling on Channel 3. And so Betsy comes along and she begins to explain to us maybe how thunder and lightning works. No, it's not a god in the heavens throwing down lightning bolts, but there are water droplets and ice crystals rubbing against each other to produce enough static electricity for lightning. Okay? Well, Zeus is simply an antiquated explanation. But as society grew, as discoveries were made, our theories become a little bit more sophisticated and complex. So what I'm trying to tell you is indeed what the rest of this tweetable section of Rabbi Jonathan Sachs says here. He says, religion and science are two different things, and we need them both. Science takes things apart to see how they work, and religion puts them together to see what they mean. And here's the rest of the quote. And the pursuit of explanation, how do things work, and the pursuit of meaning, 
why am I doing this? Why am I here? Those are two really fundamental areas of human intelligence and they're just different. You couldn't really have religion without science or we would be servants of nature instead of what God wants us to be. Masters of it. Responsible masters of it. But we couldn't really have science without religion or we would discover that we live in a completely meaningless universe and then, you know, things would be very scientific but we would lose our very humanity. Can I encourage you to rejoice that God keeps giving new information through the gifts of people in science and continue to explore and continue to investigate because I venture to say, I venture to say that you already know God is real. You already know that God is love because that's an inside out work. And it's okay if other information comes along that changes how we understand how life works from day to day. So science explores the world using physical tools and religion uses spiritual tools at the same time. So religion, Catherine Wallace in her book says, religion is a system of symbols which act to establish an order of existence that establish long-lasting moods and motivations. Like other religions, Christianity offers truths about the human condition. It then offers wisdom and insight. And I think that's important, uh, that we are individuals that work with symbols. Sometimes there are things in the Bible that are literal, sometimes there are allegories, and sometimes there are symbols. The story is told and retold over the centuries, but it is refined and it is reinterpreted in light of what we know now versus what was known 3,000 years ago. And so when we think about symbols, symbols are attached to the stories that produce them. So today what we're gonna do is we are going to take two symbols. These symbols are very natural symbols that have been used millions of times in the course of Christian faith. A piece of bread that represents the body of Christ and a cup representing the blood of Christ. Jesus who came to show us the way and the truth and the life. Jesus who came to reconcile us back to God because we have this propensity to walk away from him. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to send around the um, plate of bread. We're going to move it down and then just pass it and have it come back up. And then I'll send the cup around and bring it back up. Hold the elements and we will partake of them together. So today we take this bread and we are reminded of when Jesus came and lived his life among us. As he lived his life among us, he sat at a table with his disciples. And this would be the night that he would come to the end of his own life. And he looks at his disciples and he takes a piece of bread and he breaks it. And he says, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So this symbolic act is to help us to understand that when God, through the incarnation, which is what Advent is all about, 
comes to humankind, what he is doing is showing us what he's really like. What he is doing is giving to us the hope that he walks among us, he eats with us, and he uh, knows life as we know it. And so he takes the bread, and then he takes the cup. And as he takes the cup, one of the things that he does is he takes the cup and he says, this is the blood of the new covenant. And what he's talking about is the ancient world was built upon a system of laws that is found in the Old Testament. And people would try to keep them as a way of trying to somehow satisfy God or please God. And when Jesus comes, he's all about grace and he's about compassion and he's about love. And he sits with his disciples as he celebrates Passover meal with them. And what he does is he takes one of the cups that was used in the course of the dinner. There were four cups of wine in the Passover Seder. And he picks it up and he reinterprets it. And he gives to us a different meaning. He says, this is the new covenant, a brand new way of relating to God. This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. And, of course, some of the symbolism is that he has replaced the Passover lambs that were slain so long ago when the people of Israel exited from Egypt. And so these two symbols, a piece of bread and a cup, are to help us to enter into a long, long story with new significant meanings for our own lives. So what do you need today to help sustain you in the midst of your world? When you take this bread, it is a reminder that Jesus is with you in the midst of your circumstances. Do you feel alone? Do you feel frightened? Do you feel frustrated? Do you feel angry? What are these things that you're experiencing? As we take the bread, we are reminded that Jesus experienced those same things too. And he came through the other side, and through his resurrection, he says that hope is still living, healing is still possible, and so we take this bread, and we say, this is the body of Christ given for us. We do so in remembrance. Let's eat together. And we take a cup. This cup, representing the fruit of the vine, representing the wine that the disciples drank so long ago, that is a gift that has been given by God to humanity. You know, the image of wine is such a beautiful symbol all through the scripture. But none is as powerful as when Jesus goes to a wedding in Cana, John chapter 2, and they run out of wine. And he tells the servants to go fill the religious vessels with water and bring them to him. And it is then that he changes that water to wine and the toastmaster of the wedding comes and takes a sip of that new wine and he says, this is better. This is better than what has first been served. Who does that? Usually people serve the best wine first, and then they serve the cheaper wine later, but you have saved the best till now. And so when we take the cup, we are reminded that God is always working to save the best till now. 
He's always working to save the best till next. And so we look forward in anticipation, just like they did in the exodus from Egypt. They looked forward in anticipation when the Passover lamb was slaughtered, that God was going to get them out of slavery, was going to get them out of their struggle, to get them out of all of the hardships that they were going through. And we look forward in faith because Jesus lived among us. That whether this earth is going to provide for us an escape from a lot of the suffering we go through, what we do know is on the other side, eye has not seen and ear has not heard what God has prepared for those who love him. And that's kind of wrapped up in this symbolism here. And so we take the cup, representative of God giving us Jesus who sheds his blood so that we might live a life of faith and hope and love. Let's drink together. So as we close this morning, I want to give to you uh, a quote from a church father by the name of Irenaeus. He said this, The glory of God is a human being fully alive, and to be alive consists in beholding God. One of the ways that we behold God is not only in the scriptures, but in everything around us. Stand with me, please, as we close. So today, maybe, you go out on this fall day, and you see the beauty of the sun in the sky, and you see the leaves that have fallen to the ground, and you remember that each is certainly a gift that has been given to us by God. Imagine with me just for a second as I close that one day you're out and you are um, walking through the woods and there's this translucent ball that's kind of hanging or hovering in the middle of the woods and you go, oh my gosh, what is this? What is this? It would be science that would help you try to determine what that is and what's going on there. But as you walk through the woods along the path and you see a deer and you see all of the beauty, you remember that it is religion and faith that says these are gifts that God has given to us to enjoy. So that's what we do. We kind of live in that balance, don't we? Don't be afraid of silence. And don't be afraid of questioning your faith. It's, we're all in the process. Because in the end, God will bring all things together and harmonize them. Let's pray together as we close. Lord, so... Whether we really like this topic of science or not, it's important for us to remember that all of these things that you have put around us on this planet that we call Earth, although we're small, although we're insignificant to the rest of the universe, you have created a place for us to thrive, a place where we can breathe the air and drink the water and the place where we can find food and enjoy the beauty of mountains and oceans. And so today, Father, we come together and we thank you that while we might not understand everything that's going on around us, we do understand that you love us and you have created this place for us and you have created one another uh, for the enjoyment of love and community. Help us to keep this in mind as we wander through the woods of our understanding and as you peek through the sunshine with new information. Help us to rejoice that once again you have unfolded something for us that we get to celebrate. 
because you are the God of love and you are the creator. Thank you for our life today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you for coming. We'll hope that you have a great week this coming week and we'll see you next week, okay?